How you feeling? Good, how you doing? Good. You know about reparations? Yeah. What do you think about it? I think it's good, but I don't think it's gonna happen. Really? Here. I'll make it happen for you right now. No, I'm paying black people for their reparations. Some white person gave this to me, so I'm giving it to you. Who or what might this be? A modern-day Robin Hood? Candid camera revisited. A Hollywood stunt. No? Just another evening of ReSound. Welcome to ReSound, a program designed to bring you the most innovative and interesting audio work from around the world, curated by the Third Coast International Audio Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week, we peruse what's out there, on the air, on the web, on our minds, well, maybe we shouldn't go there, and bring you the most intriguing audio art, documentaries, narratives, humor, soundscapes, and more. Tonight, we have three stories. First, Living Flag. What happens when history bumps right up against a performance artist with some chutzpah? Then, the place you cannot imagine. It's Australia, but not an Australia that you'd ever want to visit. And finally, I hear music. And hear it, and hear it, and hear it. Why do our brains latch onto some songs and never let them go? Coming up tonight on ReSound. Stay tuned. Plus, who did let the dogs out? And why do we care? The last time we heard from performance artist Damali Ayo, she was going from hardware store to hardware store trying to get paint mixers to match the color of her brown skin and she was surreptitiously recording their efforts. Tonight, she's up to something completely different, but no less intriguing. This is her story. It's called Living Flag. It's kind of a do-it-yourself approach. You guys want to pay some reparations today? You want to pay some reparations? I'm assuming slavery of some sort. Do you have anything to explain slavery? I have to explain slavery? It's a payment for the work of my great-great-grandfather who was enslaved by people related to you. I'll write your receipt. Panhandling is a vulnerable and risky act. When I see a panhandler, I wonder what is it like to realize it has come to this, to place your body on a street corner and ask for money. When I think of the issue of reparations for slavery in this country, I think black people are in a similar position to the panhandler. It has come to this. Every time I see a black person living on the street, I think about slavery. I think about a country where so many black people are on the street, in poverty, and in prison. I think about reparations. I'm a little not ready. Just got myself a nice hot tea, and I'm going to look for a spot to sit. I look for a spot with a lot of foot traffic. I give money to other panhandlers and make sure I don't interfere with their work. I do not know where to sit. I don't see any other panhandlers. Big American flag ahead. I should probably sit right over that. Sometimes I tape an American flag over my mouth. I become a living flag, staking my claim to this country. I don't know if I have this in me right now. I sit down, get out my can. All right, I can do this. 
I wear a sign around my neck that says, 200 plus years of slavery in the United States. I place a sign in front of my can that says, reparations accepted here. Pay some reparations today. Very simple, I'll write you a receipt. Oh, thank you, would you like a receipt? I don't need a receipt, thank you. Okay, you have a good day. So far, I've panhandled in Portland, Chicago, New York, and Boston. Would you guys like to pay some reparations today? A body on the street is not invisible. But there's a moment when we choose to honor or ignore that person. We look past people on the street much as we ignore and dismiss aspects of history. When I panhandle for reparations, every person who passes me gets the chance to honor or ignore that history. So $5, William. William. I don't, okay, I see what you're doing. Yeah, this, you can send this to the IRS and you can write it off on your taxes. Okay, well, by God. $5 (laughs) on October 29th. Many black people I met while panhandling told me they have given up on the idea of reparations. Few believe that white people would even admit that they benefit from slavery. I think it's a foregone concept. It'll never come to fruition. I don't know how much difference it would actually make. I think it would be more of a gesture of goodwill, but I think just for your mental state, I think it would make a difference to African Americans that the government acknowledged it and and is trying to do something. I think that would make a difference. And cash? There you go. Thanks. Would you like a receipt? Sure. Okay. Did you give me 20 cents? I, being an American, unfortunately have to admit that we are still a racist country and we know that minorities do not get a fair shake in this country and it's time that we did something about it and the blacks always get the short end of the stick so I'm all for reparations. How you doing? Good. You know about reparations? Yeah. What do you think about it? I think it's good but I don't think it's gonna happen. Really? Here. I'll make it happen for you right now. No, I'm paying black people for their reparations. Some white person gave this to me so I'm giving it to you. So today I gave away $3 to other African-Americans and it was really exciting for them to get their first reparations payment from me. I like that. Collecting from white people payments for black people. What do you think of that? Do you want one? Come here. Come here. There's your first reparations payment for slavery. Yeah. I'm giving money to you, yeah. What's the catch? There's no catch. Your, it's always a catch. Your, an- give you money for your ancestors worked hard for that. You should get some money. Well, I'm collecting some reparations payments. And here, I, I can make a payment to you for the work of our ancestors. No, but that's what I'm doing. I'm collecting it from white people, and I'm giving it to black people. There you go. What do you think of that? <laughs> what to do with mine? I would put it in an account that bears interest. Good idea. Too. <laughs> I'm just getting the work done, you know what I mean? Getting the job done. Don't spend it all in one place. Panhandling is not big business. Most people who paid gave a dollar or whatever change they had in their pocket. Every day I do it, I am so humbled, so thankful I don't have to pay for my meals this way. My first day in Portland, I made $16.32. In each city after that, I made between $10 and $15. After four cities, I collected and reallocated about $75 in reparations. I'm collecting reparations. Get some of my money back. You, you don't have to pay. I don't have any black power. There you go. Mm, for what? Slavery. Oh. No, it's, it's a reparation. Look, this Zachary here, 
made the payment to me, and I'm giving it to you, thank you Jack. from a white American to a black American. It's, uh... thank you. Thank you. When I sit on the street, my head is right at the level where people carry a shopping bag. Did you all want to pay some reparations today? Reparations? You can pay right here. Would you guys like to pay some reparations today? Or you could shop? My first day, a woman screamed at me that I was uneducated. Another man told me I wasn't living in reality. All that white rage can be a lot to handle. If you want reparations or you want something to do with slavery, don't sit on the side of the street and bum money. It's dumb. She and her group should you know, go to work to better themselves as opposed to trying to uh, get reparations for past deeds to, to their people. I know they were mistreated and maybe they deserve something, but to sit there and beg for it on the street corner, I don't, I'm not too classy. I don't think it's my personal responsibility to repair people for things that were inflicted upon them a couple of centuries ago. How can you fix that injustice? You can't with money or anything else. It's a completely irresponsible idea. We corrected the wrongs as we went along. It's un-American, it's unconstitutional, and it's dead wrong. You want to pay some reparations? People always ask me if my work has a sense of hope. I respond that I'm just engaging reality, offering real chances for dialogue. One of these moments happened in Harlem. A black man complained to me about white people and their lack of respect. Then a white woman came up and paid $2 in reparations. He was shocked. That's the first time I've actually heard somebody say that. It's true, though. He said he'd never heard a white person care about black people. He continued to listen, and eventually he asked her for a hug. The two embraced as I watched from the sidewalk below. He says we can't all get along. Do you all want to pay some reparations today? Collecting reparations, you can pay right here. You want to pay some reparations? Hey folks, it's uh, time to pay some reparations. You can pay right here. Living Flag was produced by Damali Ayo and Dime Roberts for PRI's Studio 360 out of WNYC in New York. Something about this piece really intrigued us, and we wanted to know more. So we called Damali and talked to her about her work. You performed Living Flag in lots of different cities, and I understand that Chicago was one of them. And I'm wondering um, how Chicago was for you and how it fared compared to some of the other cities. One of the things that happened in Chicago is that the locations I chose were heavily populated by tourists. And because I wanted a lot of traffic, it actually ended up on Michigan Avenue and Rush Street. And the other reason I chose that area is because I used to work on Rush Street. Mm. So I wanted to kind of revisit... um, that area in a different sense. It seemed to me that most of the people who were local from Chicago were black people. And so they had a lot of thoughts, um, you know, or just a different, mostly favorable reaction to the work. And it seemed like most of the white people were tourists from out of town. Enough time, it seems, has passed so that you've had time to certainly reflect and change. And, and I'm wondering, as you reflect on it, what you've learned from it. Well, I've learned a ton of things. One of the things that did change halfway through the cities that I did, the four cities that I've done so far, is that, um, and this is after Chicago, you know, again, like I'm, I'm looking at all these great black people in Chicago and thinking, like, how I'm not really interacting with them enough. And so then by the time I get to Boston, I realize, oh, I can give out the reparations. I can pay directly on the spot these reparations. And so that started there. And that really, to me, was a huge leap in the piece and uh, brought it to a whole new level. Um, I've learned so much. I've learned so much about what it's like to be on the street. You know, I had a really profound experience last week in that I walked past a corner in Portland where I had panhandled, and there was a pregnant woman sitting on that corner asking for money. 
and I knew what a hard corner it was. I have a, I've always had a lot of dialogue with people about the, the position of the panhandler in the street, and now I just say very quickly to people, you know, you spend two hours doing it, it'll change your whole perspective. Um, so that's been a, a huge thing for me. I also am just still investigating aspects of what it means to be a street performer and what kind of presence and different elements one can bring there, like how much do you really want to sculpt the piece or how much is it pretty off, off the cuff. You know, somebody asked me the other day, are you acting when you're out there or are you being yourself? And for me, it's really about being myself because to act, I think, would be dis- disrespectful of the role of the panhandler and of the issue of reparations. Damali Ayo is a performance artist living in Oregon. Her first book is coming out this July. It's called How to Rent a Negro. And now, a little music. On ReSound, we like to play big chunks of music all at once so that you can enjoy it, listen to it, and get something out of it. So don't worry, no one's fallen asleep in the control booth. It's not a mistake. This is from the album Puka by Lars Hornfeth. Gwen Maxi, you're listening to ReSound. The next story we want to play for you came to us by way of Australia, where radio seems to be a completely different animal. The audio work I've heard from Australia over the last few years has been so complexly and lovingly produced that the sound seems to form a third dimension, making rich stories the rule more than the exception. The place you cannot imagine produced by Lee Redfern, is the story of a Kosovo family forced out of their home in 1999 and the plight that took them to the desert of Australia. This is the place that will inhabit you. This is the place you cannot imagine. This is the place that will finally defeat you, where the word why shrivels 
and empties itself. They were brought across the compound by the um, guards and this group of very forlorn-looking adults came towards me. They were obviously very, very low psychologically. I walk in last from all the people, all my friends. They all walk in saying to her hello and very tired, just, just saying hello. The men stood there and looked at me with a slight bemused look because they said afterwards they didn't know it was going to be a woman and they were like, we have never seen a woman lawyer before. Um. Always I think if we could find one good woman to be talk to her, to explain to her and maybe she believe us. <laughs> Always I think for a woman. Out of the group, this woman came with her hand outstretched and she said, Good morning, Marianne. My name is Giselle. I'm so pleased to see you. It was very hard, you know, to go in to see someone. I thought just Angel could come in. <laughs> that Angel, it was Marion Lee. And from that time, I started to call her Angel. And um, I thought she was pretty amazing because she had this big smile and she was welcoming me. A meeting in an isolated part of the Western Australian desert in the visitor's yard of the Port Hedland Detention Centre. Marion Lay had travelled from the other side of Australia, Giselle Osmani, from the Preshevor Valley in East Kosovo. I left my home because I was pushed from my home. Kosovo can only be described really as a disaster area. Ethnic cleansing. Virtually the whole population has been displaced. Around a million have been pushed out of the country uh, at gunpoint in most cases, sometimes by tanks. My kids were afraid. Explosion of ethnic cleansing. They say that it's got to move, you know, or they will kill us. This is a place of non-persons in a non-country. In 1999, Serbian soldiers marched into East Kosovo and forced Kosovo-Albanian villages out of their homes at gunpoint. Giselle Osmani, a then 29-year-old Kosovo-Albanian mother of five, was washing clothes when the soldiers arrived and told her to vacate her home within 10 minutes. Terrified, she called her husband and, and children And then one day, aged 19 months to six years. they came, uh, army with heavy guns and everything. They just blocked our village and say to everyone to leave their home. My children, With my children, they was six-year-old, five-year-old, four-year-old, and twins, 18 months. A journey. Giselle and her family travelled for days on foot. They passed through land laden with mines. They crossed illegally into Macedonia. With hundreds of others, they were herded onto overcrowded buses and locked in with sick and dehydrated children before being taken to a refugee camp. I, of course, like other Australian people, watched the horrendous movement of the people across the mountains out of Kosovo, out of the Preshevo Valley, in front of the guns of Milosevic's soldiers, people in the mountains, um, in the cold, homeless. 
with their children in their arms. I watched those and felt like everyone else that we needed to help, but I was pretty strongly committed to the fact that um, we needed to help people there on the ground with humanitarian aid to enable a stabilisation of the situation. And as it escalated though and got out of hand, the UN decided that the best way was to airlift people out of those areas, out of the refugee camps. In a miserable refugee camp in Macedonia, Kosovo-Albanian refugees are being shown a map of Australia and asked if they'd like to come down under. Australia represents a safe place after the refugees' terrible experience of war. On the 15th of July 1999, Giselle and her family arrived by plane in Sydney, Australia. A welcome, the Bandiana safe haven, community support, school for the children, friends. Here they met with support workers who made them feel safe and welcome and arranged for medical care for the children. Giselle found that her baby daughter, one of her 19-month-old twins, had dislocated hips. Thought to be a result of the long journey and the hours she'd spent with her legs at unnatural angles while on her mother's hip. When the doctor saw my daughter, he said, did you know your daughter has some problem with her hips? And I didn't know how it's happened. And when happened, I don't know, maybe because we walked too far away in the mountain and I hold her in her hips. I think just because I hold her badly, just to make myself comfortable, but I didn't know how she feeling. The majority of Kosovo Albanians in Victoria have agreed to leave the country. And several people still maintain they prefer to go to a detention centre than return to Kosovo. When the three months uh, safe haven project, as it was called, was up, a lot of people chose to go back voluntarily. They wanted to return to their families. A lot of them were from Kosovo and they felt that they could go back. They, um, and so they did go. A group, or Giselle's group, were from the Preševo Valley region, which is still under Serbian rule now, and they could not go back. In Giselle's case, she had the five children and of them three were sick. Um, one of the twins, the youngest ones, um, the little girl, had a very, very badly dislocated hip. She'd spent most of her time in Australia in hospital with several operations which didn't work, the bones having to be broken and reset. And she actually approached the minister with this little girl in plaster and said, begged him, please don't send me and my children back. And I um, have a lot of respect for Giselle and the way that she focused so heavily on her children. The minister, passing, looked at her and said, we will never send children who are sick like this back. We decided to not go back because we didn't know, we didn't have nowhere to go. Immigration minister gave two bad choices. One to go back and one to go, to go in detention. And I didn't like any choice, but I was forced to use 
to to take that choice, you know. But with Gisele, somehow she and a smaller group from her region fell through the cracks, probably because she'd never gone to have counselling or she was so busy worrying about her kids. She spent long hours and days in the hospital with the children with various operations. She was very traumatised herself. And so they were told, you either go back or you go to detention. And there's a poignant piece of footage that I've seen on television with Giselle waving, I mean crying, but waving from the bus to her Australian friends as she went away to detention. They put us in the bus and I saw Australians, they protesting, don't send children in jail, don't put innocent people in prison. You know, I saw their writing. I didn't know what jail mean and I didn't know what prison mean. <laughs> I just read, but still I didn't know what does it mean. Then they took us maybe 10 hours to go in Port Hedland. Very, very long way. So when we arrived, my daughter, and she told me, Mom, did we come to the moon? Because such a long, long way to fly. And when she saw that desert, she think, moon? <laughs> she thought we arrived to the moon. And I was, you know, I started to cry when I heard that, you know. But when we went in Port Hedland, it was hot to go somewhere to 50 degrees. It's very, very hot. We're going to die from hot. We can't breathe. When we just arrived, when I saw fence three meters higher, oh, I thought it looks like zoo. And I thought maybe they having uh, animals and keeping animals inside to look the children. But when they open the door, when they put inside, when I saw people, when I saw women and children behind the wires and fence, oh, they looked, you know, like animals in zoo but people in zoo <laughs> I, I can't imagine that you know I can never forget the scan when I saw uh, 900 people lived that time like many 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 people uh, lots of them was children I was so shocked you know I feeling shocked when I saw how many people they keep inside and many different people from many different countries, many different languages. I find very difficult then they put us in a building and locked us. Giselle and her family lived in a building with 200 other people. 
Conditions were terrible with poor facilities and little space. As a result, disease was rife and within days Giselle's entire family fell ill. Port Hedland is an isolated town on the edge of the great sandy desert. A private firm runs the detention centre for profit. Due to its remoteness, it takes time and money to bring in specialised staff, food and other basics. As the detention centre was run by Australian Correctional Management, a private company, everything was done at minimum cost. Giselle found herself battling for appropriate food for her children. Horrible food. Rice wasn't cooked properly. It wasn't changed, you know, every day was rice. Sometimes it was uh, white rice, sometimes uh, yellow rice. They just changed in colour, but <laughs> nothing different. <laughs> She argued for decent education and for medical care. They didn't have any activities to do, you know, nothing to do for children. Uh, and they have one class they use in like school and parents and children together. What can they learn, children, seven year old, with parents? I couldn't believe, you know, so why they shouldn't send. Uh, children to, to go in normal school because we stayed seven months, nearly seven months, and my children never gone out. Never. We all felt very sick. Then my son just difficult come his breathing and lots cough, vomiting, and he lost lots of weight. They just listen to him and say, no, he's clear in the in throat, clear in his chest. Maybe just have sore throat. But one week, two weeks, three weeks, six weeks become. My son haven't changed and he was really sick in the night time. He start to cough and vomit. Then he find very difficult to breathe. He become asthmatic. Difficult very difficult time. I, I used to fight a lot with nurse <laughs> because they didn't help. Another problem that I have with my daughter is um, for her hips problem. She become worse in Port Hedland. Again and again, Giselle tried to organize for x-rays on her daughter's hips. And I find very difficult, you know, because they three times they cut my appointments, you know, they made me appointments to go in the city and they say, no, you can't go because we don't have car to send you, like, the doctor is not in hospital, he's gone somewhere, just, you know, they're just telling something to, to stop me. She made an appointment to talk by phone to the doctor who performed the original operations on her daughter. And I couldn't wait to come that appointment and to talk with doctors to tell what's happened. But when I went there and I waiting to talk, but they already talked to him without me. And they tell uh, for my daughter, she's pretty good. She walking very well. <laughs> they tell all these things they tell to him. I say, why you talked without me? And they say, yeah, but you're not allowed to talk here because you are illegal. Then I tell again, I'm not criminal. I haven't done nothing wrong in Bandiana safe heaven. You to treat me like that. 
again I repeat to them, I'm not criminal. I haven't done any crime. Why you you keep doing that to my children and to other people? Everyone, children and adults alike, were addressed as numbers. Not name anymore. Numbers. Children start to forget their names and they say, my name is the number like three, four, five, three, four, seven. I felt very angry. So why, why I saying give that, that number? I, I have my name. And they told us we don't use the name here. You can use your name when you're going, when you got your visa. But here, just number. Inside the detention centre, Giselle and her family didn't know when they would be released or if they would be sent back. Outside the detention centre, Melanie Poole, an 18-year-old school student, watched and read and researched. Later, when Melanie met Giselle, it was the family's time in detention which stayed with her. A lot of basic human rights were being denied to them. I mean, obviously, they're not having their right to liberty by being locked up. But I think a lot of Australians like to have this idea that they're like five-star hotels. I've heard people talk about them being, oh, you know, they're better than where they came from. They get health care, they get good food, all this sort of thing. The story Giselle told me was one of having to line up for hours each day for food. And also, as all refugees in all the camps are, or all the detention centres, they were subjected to random identification checks so that could be at any time of the night could be woken up with torches flashing in their eyes uh, their numbers being yelled out to them and being made to show their cards that included her children so that was something that's been a trigger of the ongoing nightmares that her children have had she told me awful stories of others that she'd met within the detention centers the one out of all those stories that i found the most awful was a woman from China. She'd given birth while in the detention centre. She'd been in there over five years, so her two children were now seven and five. The five-year-old had never known a life outside of being incarcerated. And for this child who couldn't have done anything wrong in their lives, to spend their entire life within a detention centre is obviously just a gross violation of human rights all these sorts of things in one of the richest countries in the world. Well, I went to Port Hedland first in about 1992. I've watched over the years the open migrant centres be turned into detention centres and now into high security jails where the regime is one of harsh, punitive treatment. The rule is a rule by the ACM guards, and I'm not saying either that all of the ACM guards or personnel are people who are cruel or nasty. They're human beings, and they also see life in a different way to the way that I see it. They do their jobs, some of them do them well, others of them panic. Often they don't have enough information, they don't have enough interpreters to work with them, they don't have enough cultural backgrounds. And so in a situation where you're putting people of diverse backgrounds, diverse ages, intellectual 
ability or inability, you put them all in together from different cultures. A lot of them come from countries where those particular groups have been fighting each other for generations. You put them all together in a detention centre, you've got an explosive cocktail which defies belief. And then you put a group of people in there who are Aussies or, again, come from a diversity of background with their own hopes, fears and hatreds or dislikes. And, as I say, it's an explosive cocktail. Now, when I went to Port Hedland first, I remember coming back to Perth, getting off the plane and bursting into tears at the airport. I said to myself, I have been to hell and back. And if I thought it was hell then, I don't know what I would say it is now. There's no description, actually, because even, you know, the surroundings, people say, oh, they're living in there in, you know, they've got air conditioning. Well, of course you've got air conditioning. You have to have air conditioning um, or you're not going to survive in the buildings in the middle of the desert. It's the human condition, though. It's the fact that people are puzzled. They've come believing that they're coming to a better life. They've come believing that they're going to be accepted in a country where human rights are upheld. They've heard these wonderful positive things about Australia. They've been misled often, these later people, by the so-called people smugglers. They come here, they get thrown in there, they don't know what crime they've committed. People have been oppressing them in their own countries or they've been living impoverished lives. All they've asked, basically, most of them, is to get a chance of a better life and then they find they're being punished in this way. They don't know how long they're going to be there and they start to disintegrate. It is hell if you're locked up day after day and you don't know when the end's in sight and the cost in human terms is beyond calculation. These places are an obscenity and I'll continue to say that, that no child should ever be locked up for even half an hour but let alone half a year, or in some cases, half a decade, some children for over five years. Inside the detention centre, some members of the Albanian group were taken and returned to East Kosovo. Occasionally, Giselle would hear news back, news of her friends having to re-enter their country illegally of homes destroyed. Giselle didn't sleep. She worried. She worried about her youngest daughter's hip, her children missing years of school, her husband's health, and other people's children, other people's stories. She worried that the children would forget their names and remember only the numbers they were assigned. She worried they would forget life outside of detention and what it was they could learn in detention. Children actually talked about the idea of committing suicide. Um, children gave each other sort of tips on, you know, drink shampoo or do this, do that. They were suffering from depression despite being five and seven years old. My children started to learn Arabic when they playing with children. Uh, Afghanistan, some words, Sri Lanka, some words, you know, because they mixed with all other kids. And little English, just little English, not very much. Outside the detention centre, the Australian media printed stories of four-star accommodation and broadcast news reports of fires, riots and self-harm. 
a lot of people tend to think, oh, well, if they're doing this, then, you know, that justifies the treatment that they've been receiving. I think if this has been done, obviously it's a reaction to the treatment they've been receiving and it's a result of it. Australians who were put into prisoner of war camps in the Second World War acted in very similar ways. Jews in concentration camps also acted in very similar ways. There's the old saying, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. It certainly doesn't justify the treatment. If anything, it's an example of how horrific the treatment is. It's a testament to that. This isn't just coming out of nowhere. People don't just sew their lips together for fun. Inside the detention centre, Giselle made phone calls, wrote letters, campaigned, was lonely, was sad, and was prescribed antidepressants. When I went to see the doctor for myself, because I couldn't sleep well, they put me in a tablet, they gave me Zoloft. Outside the detention centre, Australian friends and Albanian friends on temporary visas tried to help. They convinced a renowned lawyer to take up the case. One day, passing the visitor's yard, Giselle saw Hope, a rare Australian visitor in a bright orange shirt. Marion Lay, the woman who would successfully advocate for her family's release. I'd gone with the idea that the minister believed that they could be sent back. But after I spoke to them, I um, realised for these people there was no return and it was even cruel to raise with them the very suggestion. One of the men in the group said he had two boys and he said, you know, 60 or 70 years ago, my grandfather moved my father 30 kilometres to escape a war. I have brought my children more than 30,000 miles. I cannot go back. And she stayed two days in Port Hedland and interviewed all our people. Uh, we was 16 people, uh, plus with new baby born, girl, 17. And it was so, so, you know, so nice to talk to her, you know, and I thought that doors, they open only to go in like a... Uh, like people, when they died, that door opened just to put in. People who died, they're not going to get out. Same things, I thought, in detentions, open the door just to go in. Because I find people who spent five years, I find people who spent four years and then return back. Three years, return back. Such a, you know, many difficult stories seven months, but they look like seven years. That's what I respect about Giselle, is that in all her trauma, she's not afraid to say, this is my story. I have experienced this. I know what life's about, and I know what's important in life. What's important in life is the children of this world, in particular my children, but if I can speak for my children and enable other people's children to be treated better, then I will do that. And she does that. And she gets a lot of flack 
because people who haven't got their visas yet say, you may be mucking up our visa, you may say something that the minister will get angry about. But I say, no, Giselle, you want to tell your story, you tell your story, because we can only learn if we listen to each other's stories. I bring my children to be in freedom, and I didn't know nothing about detention. I didn't know what detention means. Australia represents a safe place after the refugees' terrible experience of war. I'm saying thank you very much to these people who they understand me, how I was in that big suffering, and I come in that lucky country and in this democratic state to happen and all these things. I couldn't believe if I I didn't see with my own eyes, but I, I was there and I saw and I experienced that. So I knew what's happening to people. The Place You Cannot Imagine, produced by Lee Redfern for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. After listening to this story, I was left with all sorts of questions about how Giselle and her family were faring. I emailed Lee, the producer, and she told me that the son with breathing problems is fine now, though having difficulties associated with the war and his time in detention. Her daughter with the hip problems still has pain but is seeing better doctors and specialists now. Giselle, her family, and most of the refugees moved to Canberra to live near Marion Ley. They became Australian citizens after Marion Ley argued that the situation in the East Kosovo wasn't under UN control. If you like this story, didn't like this story, have any comments about this story, or any other aspect of ReSound for that matter, we hope that you'll take the time to let us know. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. We love mail. Who doesn't? I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound, the show that brings you audio work from all over the world on Chicago Public Radio. Who let the dogs out? Okay, so let's just say you like the song. We promise we won't hold it against you. Good. Now let's say that you still have it swimming around in your head five minutes later, and when you finally get to bed tonight, you're still humming it to yourself, whether you like it or not. Why? Why is that? What is that phenomenon all about? Exactly the question Nick Purden wanted to answer, and he did in our next story, I Hear Music. Let me start with a quick personal story. There's only been one moment in my life when I was sure I was a goner. It was a dark and stormy night. It really was. And a bunch of us were stuffed into a small and overloaded boat out on Georgian Bay. Now instead of heading inland, the driver pointed the bow of the boat to the open water. We got lost. Then the wind came up. Waves were crashing in over the bow. 
Then someone dropped our only flashlight in the water. The next thing I remember was feeling water up around my knees. The boat was sinking. And that's when I heard it. My parents' clock, about the size of a shoebox, it had always sat on the sideboard in their dining room, and it chimed every 15 minutes of my childhood. That's right, every 15 minutes. I used to hear it before it even started to chime. Sometimes it would pop into my head on the subway or when I was skiing, and then, of course, that night on the bay. So what I'm trying to figure out today is why did I hear the clock? I know it's not music per se, but it's still melody. How do notes get lodged so deep in our brains? Turns out the Germans have a word for this exact phenomenon. They call it Urworm, which translates literally as earworm. The commonplace everyday example of an earworm are the songs we all get stuck in our heads, like Barrett's Privateers, a song that seems to like to feed on my cerebral cortex. But I'm a broken man on a Halifax pier, the last of Barrett's privateers. Or that Bob Seeger song featured in the Chevrolet jingle, Like a Rock, from a few years ago. I could never shake it. I was strong as I could be. Of course, advertising jingles are written with this in mind. Just like histamines have properties that cause the skin to itch, Certain pieces of music have properties that produce, well, a musical itch. Strangely, the commercial psychologist who is the foremost expert in this field has a throat condition and is currently unable to speak. But Dr. James Calaris was kind enough to let me in on his research. He emailed me his studies into what he thinks are the properties of songs that stick in our minds. One property is repetition within the musical stimulus. A repeated phrase, motif, or sequence might be suggestive of the very act of repetition itself. In that way, the brain echoes the pattern automatically as the musical information is processed. Consider the theme from Mission Impossible. Or the song Follow the Yellow Brick Road from The Wizard of Oz. In both cases, the musical architecture is built upon the principle of repetition. So the upshot is, the song sticks. These days, the majority of songs that lodge themselves in my head are my daughter's favorites, like Row, Row, Row Your Boat or Itsy Bitsy Spider. And it's no wonder. The research also shows the simpler the song, the more likely it is to burrow into your noggin. The theory being the brain is a little lazy and it latches onto the simplest melody it can find. The final property of a stuck tune is what they call incongruity. This is when the music doesn't quite jive with the listener's expectations. For example, this tune, America from Bernstein's West Side Story, has a bit of an odd meter, and so the brain holds onto it and turns it over like a puzzle. So these are some of the ways songs get stuck in our heads and stay there. Not to mention the clocks that chime every 15 minutes of your childhood. So catchy tunes, the ones that have sticky properties, stay with us for a while after we hear them. But what about the deep, recessed songs that inhabit the cobwebbed corners of our auditory cortex? What brings them out? 
Mountain climber Joe Simpson credits this earworm, Boney M's Brown Girl in the Ring, with, in part, helping to save his life. Joe's story was told on the big screen this past winter in a documentary called Touching the Void. It chronicles how Joe and his climbing partner Simon Yates made their way to the summit of Peru's 21,000-foot Ciula Grande back in 1985. In the morning, in good weather, we actually saw what we'd been trying to climb. It was this Andean nightmare of flutings of the finest powder gorged out by snow falling down, meringues and mushrooms and cornices all over the place. So Joe and his partner made it to the top, but on the way down, disaster struck. Joe shattered his leg. Simon tried lowering his friend on a rope, but after hours of doing this, Simon couldn't hold Joe's weight any longer, so he cut the rope. Joe fell into a shattered heap below. I didn't crawl because I thought I would survive. I think I, I wanted to, to be with somebody when I died. But Joe didn't die. He dragged his body over rock and ice, and by the time he reached the base camp, he was so dehydrated and in so much pain he started to hallucinate. Part of his hallucination was the Boney M song he couldn't get out of his head. Simpson said he didn't want to die listening to this, and who would? So he kept crawling, like that night out on Georgian Bay. A moment of stress dropped the needle onto his cerebral record player. Another way the music that lies dormant inside us comes out is madness. In 1850, famous German composer Robert Schumann wrote this symphony, number three in E-flat major. A few years later, having already had a mental breakdown, Schumann began hearing things, not voices, but music. Variations on themes from his musical heroes, Schubert and Mendelssohn. The music he heard in his head upset him, and so Schumann made his way to the Rhine River and tried to drown himself. He was rescued and taken to an asylum where he eventually died. Today, Schumann would have probably been diagnosed with having musical hallucinations. Dr. Corrine Fisher studies these. She's a geriatric psychiatrist at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto. So what people describe is usually a song. It could be a song from the past. It could be a Christmas carol. I've had people talk about Christmas carols, country music. It's not something, uh, you know, something that you're just thinking about, which is what we often, you know, associate with music in our head. It's actually as you would be hearing a song on a radio. It's that kind of sensation. Fisher says the majority of people who experience musical hallucinations are older women. Many are socially isolated and have experienced some kind of hearing loss. Some of her patients hear songs they haven't heard since they were children, songs from places they used to live, but haven't been to in decades. It's, it's quite amazing to think that something, you know, when you, uh, from so long ago uh, can just all of a sudden, for whatever reason, become activated in the brain. And, and you know, wh one of the things it shows, I suppose, is that uh, the, the memory of music is stored in very, um, very deep parts of the brain and, and that, you know, certain things in life can, can reactivate music. It, it, I guess it shows that's a very significant part of our lives. It's as though music is like another layer of skin. Melodies grow on us. Some of them we shed, but others stick around to be played at some later date, like a dormant soundtrack. Growing up, my dad and I had a silent war going about the chiming clock. 
I'd turn it off and he'd turn it back on again, but neither of us would say anything about it. But in the end, I'm glad it was there. The chimes snapped me out of a kind of apathetic stupor, sitting there in the boat waiting for the worst to happen. It was the soundtrack to remembering why I didn't want to die. A melody grabbing hold of my shirt and yanking me out of harm's way. I Hear Music was produced by Nick Purden for a show on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called Definitely Not the Opera. Before we go, a little music. This is Manitoba from their album Start Breaking My Heart. And if your brain likes it, don't blame us when you're still humming it a week from now. Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Good night.